back to John Hyrcanus I. According to the directions of John Hyrcanus I, rulership of Israel after his death was to go to his wife, and Aristobulus I is to be high priest after his death. Aristobulus I did not agree with this. Obviously, mom has no right being the ruler. I'm the son, and I should take the rulership. He took the throne and imprisoned his mother, allowing her to starve to death. And then three of his brothers, he also imprisoned them as well. He did not imprison his brother Antigonus, with whom he was close. In 104 BC, Aristobulus I conquered the Iterians in the north and forced them to be circumcised if they wanted to remain in the land. Iteria is north of the Sea of Galilee and over to the east. So when it says that Jesus went to the land of the Gerasenes and he healed the, the man who was possessed by demons and threw the demons into the pigs, that's that territory. That's that territory. Now when he conquered them, he forced them all to be circumcised. You have to become Jewish, and if you're not Jewish, we'll kill you all. That's not becoming Jewish. Forcing people to be circumcised against their will is not making them Jewish and godly in any kind of way. But that's the way they viewed it. If you're Jewish, then you're one with God, and God approves of you. So what better way to make you Jewish? The Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. So I'm doing you a benefit. If I force you onto circumcisions, your life is much better now because God will bless you. Do it by force against your will. So that's, that's the kind of way that he was thinking. That. Most Jews did not think that way. That was just his thinking when he came to that. He then declared himself the first actual king. He was the first one to actually begin to call himself king of the Jews and of Israel. His brother was out fighting all the battles for him, and he was ruling on the throne in Israel. But he started having abdominal pains to the point that he thought he was going to die, and he pretty much will die from it. And Antigonus, his brother, comes back to see his brother because he knows he's being told that it's getting so bad his brother might die. He came back in full battle armor. And he was dressed in his battle armor with a sword and his shields and everything. And during the festival, Feast of Weeks, now the Jews had this law that you weren't allowed to do anything military or anything violent or anything kind of war in any kind of way during the Jewish festivals. Antigonus didn't really care about that. He was like, I don't care about your stupid traditions and that kind of stuff. I'm coming back to see my brother. It's a powder cake here. I'm not going to change clothes to come and see them. So the Jews were very irate about this, especially the Pharisees and the pious people. They were upset that he came in with military attire during this Feast of Weeks. Aristobulus, the first wife, Salome Alexander, took advantage of this and told her husband that Antigonus had come to kill him now that he was weak. Aristobulus I had him executed and died childish soon after due to sickness. So the wife doesn't like Antigonus, the brother-in-law. Right? So keep this straight in your head. Aristobulus I is king, and he's married to Alexander Salome. Alexander Salome is power-hungry. She wants everything. And she knows her husband is dying. In fact, some people believe that she might have been intentionally poisoning her husband. And she knew that the military brother was close to him and would be a threat. So she needed to get rid of both of them. 
So she told her husband, look, your brother's been away for so long. He's been doing all his military conquests, that kind of stuff. He's coming back in full military garb with all of his soldiers during a festival, and he doesn't care. He's coming to kill you. Whatever her influence was, Aristobulus was convinced and had his own brother executed as a result of it. Then he died soon afterwards. They had no children, and she took the throne as queen. In 103 BC, Salome Alexander took the throne and released Aristobulus I's brothers from prison, making the oldest brother, Alexander Janus, her husband and king. So she lets all the other brothers out and then says, Hey, I will make you king because she's a woman and most people are not going to consider that legitimate. So she has to bring Alexander Janus out to make her legitimate. But she's thinking he'll be so thankful that he's been let out of prison after all these years. And he's been so out of it. I will be able to maintain my power. But he will give me legitimacy. Not so. Alexander Janus was a borderline psychopath. And I don't know if being locked up in a dungeon for a lot of your life did that or if he was like that before he went in. And he pretty much started taking power in a lot of ways. In 103, he was appointed himself king and high priest. The Pharisees strongly opposed him for this, and he hated them as a result, so he gave more power to the Sadducees. Now this is where the Sadducees and the Pharisees are going to be pitted against each other. Up to this point, they just kind of had theological disagreements, and they had some political influence and power, but they were mostly just scholarly theological people leading the people or trying to make a living. But now he's pitting them against each other, and they're going to turn into truly political opposing powers that are going to begin to fight for power, like Democrats and Republicans in our culture. He began to fund them. Alexander Salome, she came from Pharisee backgrounds. There seems to be a lot of the men in her family were Pharisees. She was connected to the Pharisees, and she liked the Pharisees, and she agreed with the Pharisees. And so she, realizing she's lost a lot of her power, begins to support the Pharisees financially. And he, hating the Pharisees because they don't like him, that's really mature, he begins to fund the Sadducees. So you start becoming divided now with these two leaders. She's supporting the Pharisees and him supporting the Sadducees. In 93 BC, during the Feast of Tabernacles, Alexander Janus, functioning as high priest, intentionally insulted the Pharisees by pouring out the libation offering onto his feet instead of the altar. The altar, there was one, the libation offering is where you take wine and you pour it out to God. And wine is an abundance of life. If you can afford to have wine, you're extremely wealthy. Every sacrifice had to be followed by a libation offering. And you would take the wine and you pour it on your altar and you're basically saying, not only am I sacrificing my grain in order to praise and thank God for the food that he gave me, not only am I sacrificing an animal to atone for my sins, but I'm also showing God that I, I acknowledge the abundance that I have. The extra material stuff that I have comes from him and I'm willing to pour those out in order to show that I know he'll provide me more. And I'm thankful for that. And it also was symbolic of the coming Messiah, the joy and the abundance that the Messiah was going to bring. So you had to pour out an altar as an offering to God. Now remember the feet, they're the lowliest part of humans. Even today, a lot of people don't like feet. 
And that's the part that goes through the filth and the feces of animals and the dirt and the streets. And we kind of have this idea with the woman washing Jesus' feet. And only the lowliest servants did that. So if you replace the altar of God for sacrifice with your filthy, disgusting, culturally improper foot, and you pour the libation on that offering, that, that's a huge insult to God. That's incredibly sacrilegious. And they did not like that. That also shows you where he is spiritually with God, if he's willing to do that just to anger a bunch of people. During this feast, they responded by calling him a descendant of a captive woman. Now, that's an incredibly big insult. Like, that's way worse than a lot of our cuss words today, to call him the descendant of a captive woman. Because basically what they're saying is that you're a descendant of a woman who was taken by force into captivity and imprisoned into exile and has pretty much been nothing but a slave. And, and that's also you're there because God has cursed you because you go into captivity when you've sinned so greatly that God is kicking you out of the land for punishment. They called him that and he didn't like that. They began to pelt him with etagrim citrus fruit. Now, an etagrim citrus fruit is a fruit that you have at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but they smell really good. They're very fragrant, and you would decorate your house with these during the Feast of Tabernacles. And they all had these in their hand because it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and they were so angry, they just took whatever they had in their hand and started pelting them. And if you're sitting in the throne being pelted by hundreds of people with these things, it's going to hurt. And that angers him anymore. This, this, this is like brothers and sisters fighting with each other in a political sense. And so he drove them out and put up barriers between him and them. But as he drove them out, he killed 6,000 Jews. He killed 6,000 Jews in his anger. This is like Easter Sunday, one of the most important holidays in Christianity. And you've got the cross up there. In some churches, they put the purple robe over the cross and it becomes more center. You've got a crown of thrones and palm branches and that kind of stuff. And your pastor is just angry at you and doesn't like you because you don't like him. And he, so he just decides to go up to the cross and just throw it onto the ground and say, Take that! And you get so angry that you just start taking your pew Bibles and throwing it at him to hurt him. And so then he responds by killing 6,000 people in the church and then putting up metal barricades outside the church so you can never, ever go to church ever again. And oh, by the way, that's the only church there is in the entire nation. And then, like, even worse than that. Because he's supposed to be the high priest. This is so petty and so wicked and evil. And this is the high priest over Israel. As a result of this, the pro-Pharisee rebel movement grew even larger. All those people that were kind of on the fence, like, oh, I agree with you Pharisees, but I don't think you really should be opposing the king. He's kind of powerful, and I don't want my family to be hurt and that kind of stuff. When they saw that, they were like, that's it. That's it. I, I, I'm signing. Where do you want me? I'm joining you. And a huge rebellion. The Pharisees began to lead military rebellions. Now, that's the other thing you have to realize. When we come to the Gospels, you picture the Pharisees as like these teachers. But you have to realize that many of them have fought militarily. They have a long history of fighting in wars against unpious people and that kind of stuff. So, and they made an alliance with the Seleucid king Demetrius III and marched against Alexander Janus. Now, Demetrius, remember the Seleucids? This is ironic. They have just completely driven all the Seleucids out. 
and 142 BC and gain their independence. Now, in the 70s, or in the, the 90s, they are now realigning with the Seleucids to fight against their own people. This is like successfully driving out like all the Third Reich Nazis out of Poland and Romania and that kind of stuff that were slaughtering all the Jews. And the Jews drive them out. And then about 20 years later, the Jews make an alliance with Hitler's descendants and then this new neo-Nazi party in order to drive somebody out that they don't like. And that's basically what they did. The way we view Hitler is the way they viewed Antiochus IV. In fact, Hitler's child's play compared to what they viewed Antiochus IV. And so now they're making an alliance with his descendants. So the, the Seleucids are up north in Syria, way up north toward the Tigris and Euphrates River. And so they make an alliance with them, and they're like, join us. Now Demetrius III is like, I'll join you, because I'm just about conquest. So he joins them, and they go against fight in Alexander um, Janus. They slaughtered Alexander Janus' army. And they just, everybody got slaughtered. And Demetrius III allowed Alexander III, Alexander Janus, to escape, and he fled to the mountains. Now, this is really weird, too. This one I don't fully understand. Because they felt so bad for Alexander Janus getting slaughtered and his army getting slaughtered and decimated, now he's living in the mountains, the, many of the Jewish rebels actually decided to switch sides and join him because they felt sorry for him to prevent Demetrius III from killing him completely. That I don't get. We don't know enough about history to understand why, why would you, this guy insulted you, he slaughtered 6,000 of you, you started a rebellion against him, you join the enemy in order to defeat him, and then you successfully win, and he's about ready to be killed, and you're like, oh, I feel sorry for you, I'm going to change sides and start fighting with you. I don't get that, I don't get that at all. But when Demetrius III realized that his inroad into Israel was abandoning him, and they were rejoining Aristobulus or Alexander Janus, he got scared and he ran away. Because even though he had a superior army, he didn't know the region very well. And so he fled. Then Alexander Janus came out of the mountains and was able to gather another army and turned back on the rebel Jews and started slaughtering the people that actually sided with them to protect his life. This is dysfunctional. Over time, he defeated them all and captured 800 of the rebels and brought them back to Jerusalem. He then executed their wives and their children in front of them and then crucified all 800 of them. All 800 of them hung on crosses simultaneously after your wife and children were murdered in front of your eyes by them. And you're the people who switched sides to join him because you felt sorry for him. And this is what he did to him. The better you understand the world that they're living in and basically the trauma that they're going through, and what, and what they've had to fight and die in order to just maintain any kind of sense of religious freedom in any kind of way better helps you understand their reaction to Jesus. I truly believe when we go through this history, you're going to understand a lot more why the Pharisees very much don't like him, why the Sadducees don't like him. You're going to very much understand why the Jews are going to turn on Jesus very quickly. A lot of people in the church are very confused they kind of get it a little bit because we understand humans a little bit. Why would they be declaring him king and wanting to throne him and throne him? And then two weeks later, they all want him massacred. And a lot of it has to do with their history. 
A lot of it has to do with a lot of leaders turning on them, and a lot of leaders would lead them, then turn on them and massacre them and corruption. And they had gotten to the point where everybody has been so power-hungry and so corrupt and has lied to them so much and turned on them so much and attacked them that when they supported them and they thought that they were getting one thing and then it turns out that that person only used them to get into power and then is now turning on them and this has happened so many times except they're being actually massacred and killed not just disappointed in laws that are being passed or not being passed no wonder when Jesus doesn't end up becoming what they want they think oh you're just like the rest and this time they're like we're going to kill you before you can kill us we're going to kill you you're like, well, that's sick and twisted. But remember, Jesus doesn't come on the scene in his ministry until the 30s. So we're talking about 200 years of trauma, of them being turned on, turned on, massacred, turned on, massacred, turned on. That, that's in their DNA. That's in their emotional DNA right now by the time Jesus comes along. Throughout his reign, Alexander Janus continued to expand the borders of Israel. And he died of an illness, and his wife, Salome Alexander, took the throne. So when he died, she finally got what she wanted. At this point, she didn't have to have a man in her life to make things legitimate, because at this point, they didn't care anymore. And she was pro-Pharisee. So at this point, the Sadducees lost a lot of their power, and the Pharisees came into power, and they became the political dominant force in Israel, because she began to support them and fund them. That brings an end to the Judean Civil War. This Judean Civil War lasted for about three years. She installed the Pharisees as the dominant ruling priority over the Sadducees. She then established the Great Sanhedrin. We've heard this term, right? The Sanhedrin. It's in the Gospels. The Sanhedrin, up to this time period, we don't really fully understand what the great Sanhedrin is. There's a debate of what it really is. We know that the Sanhedrin, so not the great Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was their name for little mini courts, tribunal courts throughout Israel. So this was their version of the tribunal courts, and they called them the Sanhedrins. So there were many, 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 many Sanhedrin courts all throughout Israel. And this is where you would have divorce cases settle, land disputes, long suing people, all, what, all the things that we would go to court for on a minor level. And so the Sanhedrin, when she comes into power, she establishes what's called the Great Sanhedrin. The closest that we would have to this is what we call the Supreme Court. And this would be the greater. Therefore, at this point, all the other Sanhedrin courts started becoming known as the Lesser Sanhedrin. Every single time you hear about the Sanhedrin in the Gospels, it's talking about the Great Sanhedrin. So the Great Sanhedrin became like the Supreme Court. When we think of Congress, a lot of people have compared this to Congress, but we don't know. So here's the two debates, the two sides. Some scholars believe that the Sanhedrin was more like Congress, where it contained um, uh, legislative powers where the Sadducees and the Pharisees had legislative power, and that was their more dominant power and influence. And depending on the political um, environment, one party was stronger than the other party. Some scholars believe that the Sanhedrin was more like the Supreme Court, or was mostly responsible for judicial rulings, but did have some legislative power, 
and that the Supreme Court was dominated by whoever was in power and wanted them people. So it wasn't divided like the House and the Senate, be Republican and, um, and Democrats. It was more like it would all be Sadducees or all be Pharisees on the Supreme Court, depending on who was in power and wanted who to be there. Does that kind of make sense? So we don't fully understand. It was either like Congress, where you have two political powers that are mostly legislative and the power keeps balancing over time or switching balance, or it was more like the Supreme Court, where whoever was ruling at the time made the Supreme Court all Sadducees or all Pharisees, and that it was more of a judicial with some legislative power. Most people tend to lean towards the Supreme Court idea since it seems to be that's what Salome did. When she came into power, she gave the Pharisees absolute control over the region and reduced the Sadducees, which seems more like a voting all the people in the Supreme Court off the seats and replacing them with all new people. Or it could be just a seriously one-dominated side Congress. But that's basically what they were. The Sanhedrin is what Jesus stands before. Caiaphas, the leader of the Sanhedrin, and they're the ones who convicted Christ of blasphemy and treason against the Roman government. And then they went to the Roman government, said this was our Supreme Court ruling, and then they then crucified him for us. So that's who was responsible for crucifying Jesus. Actually, it was not that the Pharisees backed them up. It was the one time they got along. But it was mostly the Sadducees who had power, the Sanhedrin, who got him crucified. Upon Salome Alexander's death, her son John Hyrcanus II took the throne. Three months later, his brother, Aristobulus II, supported the Sadducees. When she dies, she was more favored towards John Hyrcanus II. John Hyrcanus II was very weak-minded and very easily manipulated by a lot of people's testimony. But he also seemed to have a very close relationship with his mother. So she appointed him king and high priest when she died. Aristobulus II was a determined, power-hungry person. And he did not like that. We don't know whether he actually liked the Sadducees or not, but wanting power, he decided to go to the Sadducees and back them up and get their support so he could go against his brother. Now this is where it begins to get really even more brutal. He rebelled against them. This launched them back into another civil war. Brother against brother, lead with the Pharisees against the Sadducees. So you didn't even know how politically, militarily oriented the Sadducees and the Pharisees were. You just think they're a bunch of people in court systems, but they're actually military people fighting and killing each other. So this is why they don't like each other when Jesus comes on the scene, because they've actually fought multiple civil wars with each other, killing each other up to this time point. They're not just teaching the law, and they're not just making Roman approval laws. They're actually massacring and killing each other in civil wars throughout this time period. That's how much these people hate each other by the time Jesus comes on the scene. The Sadducees had way more money and way more Greek influence than the Pharisees, so they rebelled against with him. Most of the Jewish army sided with Aristobulus and John Hyrcanus was defeated at the Battle of Jericho. John Hyrcanus II was forced to renounce the throne and the high priesthood, but still received money from the temple tithe. Aristobulus II declared himself king and high priest. So Aristobulus dethroned and de-high priest, his brother. But he said, brother, you're still my brother, so I'll allow you to have a monthly allowance from the temple. 
that's just entitlement. But it's also wrong because you're not allowed to just pay somebody money from the temple. That's like, so he's out. Aristobulus II was a very strong ruler, a very ruthless, horribly evil ruler, but a very strong ruler. This is when a new group of people come in. Antipater. Antipater was an Edomian. Remember the Edomians were the new name for the Edomites. And remember, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob became the father of the Israelites, and Esau became the father of the Edomites. So this is a descendant of Esau, Antipater. Antipater decided that he was going to go to his good friend John Hyrcanus II and help him gain power. He didn't really like John Hyrcanus II, but he was weak-minded, and he could be good friends with him and convince him that he was going to help him. So that when John Hyrcanus took the throne, he could kind of push John Hyrcanus out and take the throne for himself. And so Antipater comes in, he helps him. And he gets with the Pharisees, and he also sides with the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans live close to Edom, down in the south of the Dead Sea. The Nabataeans are we don't they're like they're the people who are responsible for Petra and Jordan, if you know about that. that those, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, that happens at Petra. Except you actually can't go inside, even though Steven Spielberg made you think you could. The Nabataeans, he got them to aid them in going. And so now you have the war between Antipater, John Hyrcanus II, and Nabataeans versus Aristobulus II, his brother, and the Sadducees and the Jewish army. So this is a very interesting alliance. They begin to fight and go to war, but they were defeated by Aristobulus II. Then, in total desperation, losing the war, John Hyrcanus II and Antipater decided to seek out a new force on the scene. Pompey. Pompey is the Roman general. Pompey is the city that got wiped out. Pompey was a very dominant general. He was, a, he was part of this group called the Triumvirate three men who were largely ruling over Rome and had more influence and power than anybody else. And Pompey was a naval general who was making a name for himself, clearing the Mediterranean Sea of the pirates. He was getting rid of the pirates. And he was successfully removing of the pirates because once he got rid of the pirates, then Rome could expand into Israel. Rome had their eyes set on Israel and they wanted to conquer them. And they go to Pompey and they're like, back us up and we'll give you our allegiance. And Pompey was like, okay. But he looked at the He's like, let me look at what's going on first. So he went to Israel, and he viewed the scene, and he looked, at John, he looked and learned about John Aristobulus II, and he determined that Aristobulus II was so strong-willed and so determined that it would be hard to control him. Then he looked at John Hyrcanus II, and he said, yeah, you're really weak-minded and easily manipulated. I'll go with you, because I can turn you into a puppet. So you've got Antipater, who's siding with John Hyrcanus II, to try to make him a puppet. And they're both going to Pompey to get his support, who's looking at them thinking, I'll make you a puppet. Everybody's just aligning with each other because they think they can use each other. And he banks them up, and they crush Aristobulus II, because we're talking about the Roman Empire now. However, he doesn't make John Hyrcanus II the king. He makes Antipater the king, and he makes John Hyrcanus II the priest which means for the first time not only a non-Levite being high priest, but now we're going to have a non-Jew being the king. So Antipater now becomes king. 
And John Hyrcanus II is just high priest. Pompey imprisons Aristobulus II. And Pompey goes back to the Mediterranean Sea, but leaves several legions of Roman soldiers there. Now, eventually, Pompey is going to be replaced by Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar and Pompey are warring with each other. And Julius Caesar thought, hey, if I release Aristobulus II and his sons from prison, that will tick the Jews off so badly, and they'll think that Pompey did it, and they'll turn against him, and that will help me defeat Pompey. So he's just using Israel. That's messed up. Pompey's men didn't like this, so they poisoned Aristobulus II and beheaded his son Alexander, and his other son Antigonus got away. How many people want to live in this time period? Hey, no matter how chaotic you think America is right now, you go read human history, and it's God bless America. I, that's what I tell my students all the time. After we go through the life of Jacob, and you see how dysfunctional your family is, their family is, then it makes you feel better about your family. After you go through this time period of history, it makes you feel better about America. It could always be worse. I'm not saying it won't get worse, but right now, it could always be worse.